turn in your uh, Bibles to uh, Lamentations chapter 5, Lamentations uh, chapter 5, and my name is John. If I haven't met you yet, I'm one of the pastors here at uh, JVC, and uh, glad to have you worshiping with us this morning. Uh, Lamentations chapter 5, and we're going to read the whole uh, passage. Remember, Lord, what has happened to us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become fatherless. Our mothers are widows. We must buy the water we drink. Our wood can be had only at a price. Those who pursue us are at our heels. We are weary and find no rest. We submitted to Egypt and Assyria to get enough bread. Our ancestors sinned and are no more, and we bear their punishment. Slaves rule over us, and there is no one to free us from their hands. We get our bread at the risk of our lives because of the sword in the desert. Our skin is hot as an oven, feverish from hunger. Women have been violated in Zion and virgins in the towns of Judah. Princes have been hung up by their hands. Elders are shown no respect. Young men toil at the millstones. Boys stagger under loads of wood. The elders are gone from the city gate. The young men have stopped their music. Joy is gone from our hearts. Our dancing has turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. Because of this, our hearts are faint. Because of these things, our eyes grow dim. From Mount Zion, which lies desolate, with jackals prowling over it, you, Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures from generation to generation. Why do you always forget us? Why do you forsake us so long? Restore us to yourself, Lord, that we may return. Renew our days as of old. Unless you have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would speak to us today as we look at this passage that is deep, that is heavy, that is dark. And Lord, you know every person here. You know the deep and dark things that we are wrestling with. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would be at work through my words and it would use these words to make them words of life and hope and creation in the life of everyone that is here. We pray, Lord, that something supernatural would happen in our worship and in the preaching of your word. We trust that it will. And so we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. One of the ironies of life is that when you're young... You can't wait to be older, but once you're older, you would give anything to be young again. You would appreciate all those things that you just took for granted when you were a kid and counting down the days till you turned 16 or 18 or could move out of your parents' house or whatever it was. Things like summer break. Kids have no idea how amazing it is to get three months off in the summer with no responsibility. And sleep. Right? Like when I see some of my kids sleeping with half of their body 
laying limp off of their bed and yet they're dead asleep. And then I think of how I, you know, get nervous when I'm not sleeping in my own bed for just one night. And no bills, no mortgage payments, no rent that goes up each year. But all the money you could get, you just can blow it on candy and toys and you'll still have food to eat for dinner. But perhaps even more is when we're children, we're innocent. We don't know how much the world can hurt as you get older. The sadness of broken relationships, of dreams that have been dashed, saying goodbye, death, dead-end jobs, job losses, and more. And sometimes, though, that pain breaks even into kids' lives all too soon, and they're forced to grow up way too fast and deal with things that you don't want any child to ever have to deal with. And then I look at my children who are growing up too fast, and I'm glad they're growing up. I mean, being past the diaper stage is amazing. (laughs) No more middle-of-the-night feedings is great. And the fact that they can all dress themselves, that is never something you realized would be completely revolutionary for your life when all your kids can get dressed on their own. But I'm also a bit sad because I know one day they'll lose some of that innocence and some of that joy, and they'll realize that life is really complicated and it can hurt really bad. And for all the joys that we have during the holiday season, it can also make that pain all the more present. Christmas can be a reminder of how your life hasn't turned out like you'd hoped, of all the things that you've lost, or just wishing that Christmas could be as simple and magical as it was when you were a kid. This Advent, which is those four weeks before Christmas, we're doing a series called Peace on Earth with a question mark at the end. Because so much of Jesus coming as a child was announced with peace on earth, and yet we can look throughout our world and in the centuries after Jesus' coming and ask, where is there peace on earth? Look at that poem that where Henry Wadsworth Longfellow wrote that the, uh, the world mocks the song of peace on earth and goodwill to men. And so we're looking at what does Scripture have to say about peace on earth, and here we have a passage where we see Peace is lost. And what I want us to remember, though, is that even when there is no peace, for those in Christ, it will get better. For those who are in Christ, it will get better. And we're going to look at this just two points. First, our mourning, and then second, our hope. First, our mourning. We're looking at the last chapter in Lamentations, which is kind of a a small little book that's sandwiched between big books. It's hard to to find one that we don't probably turn to very often. Uh, It's a book that is actually a collection of five poems that are follow an acrostic based on the Hebrew alphabet, which is why most of the chapters have 22 verses in accordance with the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Although chapter three, which is in the middle, has three poetic lines for each letter. So it's something like a culmination, the peak at the center of the book. And the last poem, which we've looked at, is also a bit different because though it has 22 lines of poetry corresponding to those 22 Hebrew letters, it's not an acrostic. They're all jumbled up. It's almost like by the end of this, the author has said the world itself, the order of the world is all falling apart. An order has been lost. It's also marked by very short lines, which doesn't come across so much as in our translations because the uh, translators are forced to add some words because the, the lines are so short, it's almost like the author, when he finished writing this poem, 
had ran out of words to say and didn't even have the strength to speak in complete sentences. He's so distraught. And Lamentations was written in response to one of the most traumatic events for the people of Judah, the loss of their holy city, Jerusalem. Around 588 BC, the Babylonians surrounded Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And tens of thousands of people huddled together in the city, trapped in Jerusalem, hoping that God would save them. But those weeks turned into years. And after two years of of hoping, longing for a deliverer, the Babylonians finally were able to get through the city walls. They broke in and they killed many, raped many, carted off others to Babylon. And it's out of that experience that the book of Lamentations was written. It's a lament of the loss of people that have lost their homes, their future. They bear marks of deep trauma. And what we see here in the first verse is we notice, remember, Lord, what has happened to us. Look and see our disgrace. It's in the first person plural. It's not just one person who's suffering and everyone else is doing fine. No, the community has turned out to cry because of these tragic events that have happened to them. They've all gathered in the streets to wail and to mourn. And what I want to do is just highlight some of the verses as we walk through the passage to help us even feel a little bit of what they were feeling. So verse 2, our inheritance has been turned over to strangers. You know, it's one thing to maybe have your inheritance lost, right? The stock market goes down and your inheritance goes up in, in smoke, but it's another thing to have your inheritance out there, but see someone else enjoying it. Strangers. And then even more so, our homes lost to foreigners. People came in and evicted you from your home by force. That place where you raised your kids is now being lived in by strangers. They they change all the landscaping. They cut down those trees that you planted so long ago. Verse 3, we've become fatherless. Eventually, all of us are going to say goodbye to our fathers, but then we see in the second part of the line, our mothers are widows. This adds a little bit more depth that it's not just that people are dying from our old age, but our fathers are dying all too young, leaving our mothers alone as widows to raise their children. And why are all the fathers dying? Well, likely they were killed in the battle, in the fighting. A generation is growing up without a dad, and the mothers have become widows. The very people that God promises to care for, the widows, are now distraught and trying to survive. Verse 4, We must buy the water we drink. Our wood can only be had at a price. Now today we, you know, we expect to pay for water. You get your water bill every month and it's not a big deal. We even buy bottled water, right? Which I think costs more than gasoline. For some reason, my kids are obsessed with Fiji water. I don't know what it is, but every time they see Fiji water in the store, they want us to buy some, which I think is like some of the most expensive water. But back then, people expected to get water for free. You'd go down to the well and draw water each morning that you needed for the day, or you'd take jugs down to the river and and collect your water and bring it back. Water was free, but now this thing that was free, we're having to pay for. 
And it's like when you book a flight and you think, oh man, I got a great deal on this airline ticket. And then you get there and you realize I got to pay for my carry-on and my water bottle and before too long, my seatbelt as well. Jerusalem was a city without a river. And so you can imagine when it's laid siege, water becomes more valuable than gold. There's no easy access to water. And wood, again, Typically a, a free source of fuel that you would use to heat, but more importantly, you used it to cook your food. It was your fuel source, and you just go out into the, the woods, chop down some trees, and use that as your firewood, but now you've got to pay for it. We learn why in verse 9. We get our bread at the risk of our lives because of the sword in the desert. To go out to where the fields are, to go out to where the forests are, we do it at the risk of our life. The supply lines have been blocked by pirates. And another reason for this is verse 13. Young men toil at the millstones. Boys stagger under loads of wood. These are jobs that typically were done by animals. Grinding grain, pushing that big millstone around in the granary was done by an ox. Pulling a cart full of firewood that you've chopped down from the woods was pulled by an ox. But where have all the animals gone? Probably they've been eaten because people are starving. And now it's people that are doing that back-breaking labor of animals, the young boys. And this leads to supply shortages. Right? They can't do the work as quickly as they used to. And so the community is experiencing rapid inflation for these basic necessities of water, wood, and bread. Things we used to get for free, we now have to pay an arm and a leg for. And jumping back to verse 7, our ancestors sinned and are no more. And this is speaking of, of the ways in which God's people of old had sinned and they didn't follow God. They worshiped other gods. They rejected God. But now they've died. And, and what do the people say? And we bear their punishment. They may have died, but their sins didn't die with them. It's like when you have a, maybe a father or an ancestor who dies and you discover that, that not did they just not leave you any inheritance, but they also left you with hundreds of thousands of dollars of gambling debt that now the creditors are coming after you for. We're having to pay for the sins of our ancestors. They dug this pit that we're going to die in. in. Verses 8, slaves rule over us. Right? This is a great reversal. On one hand, God liberated his people when they were oppressed in slavery. And now they're crying out for a deliverer like Moses, and yet there's no one. And these slaves who the Israelites were supposed to treat with kindness have now turned on them, and they're not being treated with kindness at all. And the slaves are like brutal taskmasters. Verse 11, women have been violated in Zion. The women were used as toys for pleasure for the invaders. And then worse than that, the virgins, the girls, have lost their innocence being ripped away by cruel men. Verse 15, joy is gone from our hearts. Our dancing has turned into mourning. If they're imagining this day, we, we know what it's like to have joy on the inside. We remember the parties we used to hold, the dancing, the laughter, the good food, the free water, plentiful bread. We had great holiday parties. But now we have nothing to celebrate. And as the holidays come, it just reminds us 
of everything that we've lost in our life. Verse 17, because our hearts are faint. Because of these things, our eyes grow dim. We've lost our will to do much. It's hard to even get out of bed in the morning. Everything seems dark. We're you know, living in Alaska in the dead of winter, and there seems no reason to do anything. Our eyes are swollen from our tears. We've lost that sparkle from our eyes. And then verse 18, Mount Zion, Jerusalem, is in ruins. It's haunted by jackals. Jackals are a scavenging animal. They, they're animals that come after war to pick flesh from the dead bodies and eat the trash. And our homes have become the haunt of jackals. One of the things that I particularly appreciate about Scripture is just how honest it is. It speaks to every human emotion out there, and it doesn't shy away from the darkest ones. Sometimes people think, oh, as Christians, we just got to act like everything's good or always have a smile on our face, and yet Scripture is full of cries from the depths of darkness. It shows that even those people that are following God can find themselves living in the valley of death. And what I love also, though, is it shows us how to direct that pain, where to take your tears, where to take your cries for help. And what is it that you're doing with your tears, your cries of pain and your sorrow that you're dealing with right now? Where are you taking it? How are you dealing with it? And sometimes we just bottle it up on the inside and and we wrap it up in nice paper and put a bow on our life and say, no, everything's fine. But underneath that Christmas wrapping is a broken heart. Often we distract ourselves. And it's why some people pour themselves into work or whatever hobbies they have. And alcohol sales spike in the holidays. And I doubt it's just because of all the holiday parties, but because people want to numb the pain they feel during the holidays. You pour yourself into the next project the next thing, the next hobby, the next distraction, so you don't have to be honest about your hurt. Sometimes we live in the past. Like uh, Uncle Rico in Napoleon Dynamite, if you've you've seen that, right? He never gets past how his future life in the NFL all came crashing down when he dropped that one pass in that championship football game in high school. And he never gets past it, right? And we can spend so much of our lives thinking about the past because we can't come to grips with the present. And sometimes the darkness just overtakes us. We live in a cloud of doom, and our loss defines our life, and we're convinced that I'm never going to smile again. You don't think you have anything to live for. But our passage shows us a better way to deal with our pain, and it's to pray it, to pour it out before God, to be honest with Him that you can cry out your heartbreaks and losses to him. You can take a chapter of Lamentations, every one of these would be great. You can take the Psalms of Lament and use that as kind of a, an outline, a backbone for your own prayers to give you words to express your own loss to God. You can name those things that give you nightmares, those things that overtake you at the most unexpected times. God is a wonderful counselor. And this brings us into our second point, hope. Verse 19 marks this transition from describing their situation to now turning to God. 
It says, you, Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures from generation to generation. Now, this feels like a good turn. Okay, we're remembering who God is, but then there's a twist in the next line. Why do you always forget us? We can follow some of their logic. If your throne is forever, if you're king, why are we suffering so much? Why is our life so hard? Why are our eyes swollen with tears? What good is having you as our God done for us? I mean, I know we've messed up. I know we're not perfect, but it's not like those men who came and took our women were saints. What are you doing about them? And so many of us wrestle with this. Why, Lord, has my life turned out like this? Why are tears my only food? Why is it that these people who don't care about you are getting ahead and every morning I wake up to a new heartbreak? Verse 21, restore us to yourself, Lord, that we may return. Renew our days as of old. We can see this tug of war of faith and doubt. Why do you forsake us? Renew us. But then a darker thought creeps in. Unless you have utterly rejected us, and are angry with us beyond measure. What if God has given up on us? That he's had enough. He's looking at us, you're too much trouble. This was the last time you've messed up one too many times. You aren't worth it. Has God washed his hands of us? What if this living nightmare is our future, and our kids' future, and our grandkids' future, and we'll never know peace on earth? And I want to deal with this in two ways. First, that question they ask, can God utterly reject you? When you find yourself living in the darkness, is it because God has left you? And the reason that we struggle with this is because we know we're not perfect. We know that we've messed up. Some of us know that we've made huge mistakes in our life, and we live with the reminders of that every single day. We struggle to forgive ourselves for the things that we've done. And we have this sneaking suspicion that God, even though, oh, God is love, he forgives, you still have this sneaking suspicion that God's got a little book with all those things still written on it that you did to screw up. And on one hand, that impulse is actually correct. That God sees everything, he's holy, he demands perfection. So that when we feel like we've fallen short, that I've screwed up, that God has good reasons to be dissatisfied with me, that is a correct impulse. It's good to acknowledge that, yeah, I've really screwed up. But we also see that there's forgiveness. And it's not a cheap forgiveness. Because Jesus came into the world on that very first Christmas. And from the moment he was a baby to the moment he died, he lived his life perfectly that he actually had no reason to be ashamed. He never messed up. He deserved God's love. He had no reason to be rejected by God because he got straight A's when it came to life. And yet when we get to the end of his life here on earth, what does he say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's like verse 22 of our passage has come true for Jesus. You have utterly rejected me and are angry with me beyond measure. We could picture verse 16 in light of Jesus. 
the crown has fallen from his head and it's been replaced with the crown of thorns. Because of my sins, well, not because of his sins, but because of the sins of his people that he said are mine. And because Jesus was utterly rejected by God, you can't be. But that's only true if you are found in Christ. In this passage, there's this great reversal that God's people are suffering. They've lost their inheritance. It's like the inmates are running the asylum. But Jesus then makes an even greater reversal. The perfect Son of God is put to death by the inmates. To be a Christian means that you are united to Christ. And to be united to Christ means you're united to his life, his death and his resurrection, that when Christ was dying, when he was utterly rejected, when God was angry with him beyond measure, that it was your sins that he was angry for. It was your mistakes that Christ was rejected for. It's as if you were there on the cross with Christ. And that means someone has already died for your sins. Someone has already been forsaken for your mistakes. And so that means it would be unjust for God to forsake you today for anything you do. It would be unfair because Christ has already been rejected for you. And so God has only mercy and love and acceptance when you trust in him. And that means no matter how dark it gets, no matter how much you've messed up, no matter when you mess up for the 10th time and how much you believe you deserve judgment and how much you can't forgive yourself, there's in one sense that's true, but there's another sense that says Christ has taken it all and it's paid in full. If you are in Christ, you cannot be rejected by God. 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are unfaithful, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny who he is. And that means Jesus knows what it's like to be in the darkness. Jesus knows what it's like to be rejected. He knows what it's like to hurt. He knows what it like, it's like to bleed. And you can come to him and discover a wonderful counselor when you feel all alone. And the second thing I want to highlight is knowing that if we cannot be rejected by God, if we're in Christ, well, how then do we live today in a world where there is no peace on earth? When we're living in a world of the shadow of death. And we live that way because we trust that the darkness doesn't have the last word. That when the Son of God died and suffered under the anger of his Father, Darkness covered the earth. It got dark, and Jesus' lifeless body was put in a cold and dark tomb. And the disciples thought, it's all over. They ran away. They went back home. They went back to their date jobs. They thought, it's all over. Darkness has won. But don't forget, weeping may last for the night. And that night may be really long and cold and lonely. But joy comes with the morning. And Jesus came out on that grave, on that resurrection morning, to a new life. And that was the proof 
that a resurrection is coming for the universe, a sunrise that will change everything forever. Jesus showed that the power of death is broken, that death is not the end, but is actually the gateway to a glorious life in the fullness of Christ. A resurrection life where you're free from sin and suffering and pain and all the tears have been wiped away. You'll be restored. I love the end of verse 21. Renew our days as of old. Some of that joy, some of that sparkle, some of that lightness in your step of when you were a kid, you'll have again on that resurrection morning. And when that is our hope, that means that you can stare the darkness full in the face and not fear. You can step into the unknown and still have hope. No matter how dark it gets, no matter how much we must suffer, no matter if someone lays your limp body into the cold, dark tomb. Because hope breaks in. And God will raise every one of his people into a glorious future. And Christmas is our reminder of that. It's apt that we do it in the dark of winter, a season where each day gets shorter and more and more darkness seems to cover the earth. And you feel it, you get more depressed, you go to work when it's dark, you come home when it's dark. But it won't be that way forever. A light shone in Bethlehem. And that light that started there is a light that shined in the darkness and the darkness will never overcome it. And so in your suffering, don't lose hope. There will be peace on earth. Jesus is coming again. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would give us that hope. A hope that isn't dependent on our circumstances, but a hope that is rooted in the resurrection. A hope that can even shine light into darkness. A hope that cannot be overcome by the darkness. Father, help us to press into Christ more than we ever have. Help us to trust in him. And for those of us who've never taken that step of faith, that you would draw us to believe in you, that you are life. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.